Well, yeah, as I mentioned, we were at the G3 conference last week in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, it was a good conference. And I'm sure if you asked any of the pastors, they would all have their particular highlight uh, that they got from the conference. And I want to share with you my highlight. Uh, And my highlight was just significant to me, but I'm not sure many of them shared this same uh, experience. But I got to meet LeBron. Yeah. Got to meet LeBron. LeBron came to the CBI booth with Christian books in hand. Nobody even really noticed. But I got to meet LeBron, and it was a highlight of the trip for me because I got to meet her. Got to meet her. Joanna LeBron was her name. Joanna LeBron, she came up to the CBI booth, and as you can imagine, I'm sitting there, and she has her name tag, and it says Joanna LeBron. And I'm like, LeBron. And before I could even finish my sentence, I said, LeBron, like, and she said, uh-uh, uh-uh. And she said it with some sass, too. She was a, she was a southern sister. She said, uh-uh, LeBron ain't got nothing on me, baby. <laughs> I said, what? She said, LeBron wishes what I had because I got Jesus. And I couldn't do nothing but say, amen, sister. I gave a high five. But she was sincere about that. She said, I got Jesus. He ain't got nothing on me. Here's a man that's worth $1.1 billion. And here's a gal that's saying, that don't mean nothing. He ain't got nothing on me. And it was just a great thing to hear. And honestly, it was the highlight of the trip. I mean, I probably shouldn't say that because we paid for the conference and all that stuff. But it was the one thing that stuck with me as we were going through Ephesians because wanted a, you know, a billionaire. Ain't got nothing on her. And it just made me think, do, do I think like that? Do I really have that understanding of God's grace and the eternal wealth that he's given us? To say, I don't care how much money or wealth or material things you have on this earth. I know if you're not in Christ, you ain't got nothing on me. Nothing on me. Not because of what I got, because I got Jesus. And that stuck with me the whole week. Because if you understand that you have Jesus, you understand that you have the the grace that's been given to you. You know that you're part of the wealthiest people group that walk the face of this earth. But does your praise to God reflect that? Because when you don't understand what you have, your eternal wealth that you have, then the praise that you give to God can hit dry spells. Right? You can hit walls where you, 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 you have a hard time thinking why I should be praising God. We don't say that as Christians, but you can hit those dry spells of forgetting what to praise him for. But when you have a good understanding, when you have a grasp, of the eternal wealth that you have, more than anybody else walking the face of this earth, you praise God with the highest praise. And that's why I've titled this, Worthy of Our Greatest Praise Part 2. Because if you remember, we talked about last week, Paul is praising God all in one sentence. This dude is a machine, 202 words in the original language. He's not stopping because he's got that much to say about God and praising him. And if you and I want to get better at praising God, which we should all 
strive to do every single day because he deserves it, we need to take a look at how Paul is praising God, why Paul is praising God. Because if you've ever been around somebody that praises God so well and everything that they say and everything that they do, it becomes infectious. You start to either wonder, why am I not praising God that way? Or you start to praise God because you're like, man, this, this dude is on fire for Christ. I, I, I need to step my game up because he's worthy of it. Paul is the one that does it the best, arguably. 202 words, one whole sentence. Let's jump into that. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Turn there with me. Verse 11 through 14. Let's read it together without commentary, first time around. Verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Before we jump into it, if we're studying the Bible. I want to study it together here for a second as we look at our passage. And the first thing is if you're studying those first two words that you see, you, you've seen those before, in him, in him. There's some variation of that in this first passage, this one sentence in the Greek, 11 times, in him, in Christ is what he's saying. In Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. We'll talk more about that inheritance in just a second. Having predestined according to the purpose of him, predestined. We talked about that last week, right? God has a purpose. God has chosen us. God has predestined us by his grace and his grace alone. There's nothing that you and I have done to deserve adoption, deserve the predestination. It's by his grace. He has chosen you. Why? So you can feel good? No. No, it's not about that. He has predestined us for a purpose. It's a purpose to glorify him. That is the purpose. The purpose is not for us to be lazy. The purpose is not for us to sit back and say, you know what? I'm the frozen chosen. God chose me because, you know, I have potential in my life. You didn't have potential. I didn't have potential. God chose us for a purpose to glorify him. So any of the sitting back and saying, you know what? There's nothing for me to to, to do until Christ comes back. That's not biblical, guys. There's work to be done. If you are in Christ, right, there's good works that he has prepared beforehand to glorify him. So we must read that and understand that, yeah, there's a purpose to why we've been predestined. And he works all things according to the counsel of his will, right, his plan. We can just understand that, the counsel of his plan, so that we, we, look at that. There's a pronoun, and as you you change down in verse 13, you see you. And then in verse 14, you see our, right? He's not playing this pronoun game that we play nowadays, right? He's not doing that. But here's what he's doing. He's focusing that first pronoun, we. So he's associating himself with those who were the first to hope in Christ, right? The Jews, the Christian Jews, the first ones to hope in Christ, the ones that the gospel came to, the ones that salvation came to first. He's, he's, he's placing himself with them, right? So he's saying we, And then you look in verse 13, he also says, 
you. So you, and remember, he's talking to mostly Gentile Christians here. So he first says we were who were the first to hope in Christ. Then you, right, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and then look at that last one in verse 14, our. So he goes from we, Jewish Christians, to you, Gentile Christians, and then he says our, right, our inheritance, all together, we're all one family in Christ. We've been adopted. So as you study that, picking up on those words that, that jump out, we'll continue that um, as we go on. But I wanted to point that out first because we need to understand what Paul is talking about. We need to remember that Paul understands something about Jesus that, that just keeps him going, that he cannot stop talking about Jesus. He cannot stop talking about his salvation. I talked to you about that last week. That's something you and I should be praising God for every single day because it's that big of a deal that he saved us for eternity. We should be praising God for our salvation. It should not be based on circumstances because oftentimes that's what we do. We praise God based on circumstances. When we're at a high point in our life, then, oh, we'll give all praises to God, right? Thank you, God, for what you've done for me. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my marriage now that it's on a good streak. Thank you for my kids now that they're obeying me. We, we praise them high when we're on a, a, a high note. Right, but when we're in the depths, right, because Ecclesiastes 3 says we're going to have highs and we're going to have lows. But when we're in the lows, we have a hard time praising God. But instead, we question him. God, why are you putting me through this? But we need to understand all of this is part of his plan, to glorify himself. And regardless of wherever you are in life, whatever your circumstances are, you and I need to recognize that we have an eternal wealth that's more than anyone else's walking the face of this earth. And we need to remember that. In good times and the bad times. And that's point number one for us this morning is we need to recognize our eternal wealth. Recognize your eternal wealth in Christ. Recognize your eternal wealth in Christ. Because when you recognize your eternal wealth in Christ, then the praise doesn't stop. It doesn't matter what's going on on this earth because your eyes are in heaven. Your eyes are on the kingdom. Your eyes are in glory because that's where we're going to spend eternity. This, little, this life that we have here is just momentary. It's just momentary. God has a plan to use us here before we spend eternity with him. And guess what? There will be constant temptation, constant temptation that you and I will both have to fixate our minds on earthly wealth, earthly wealth. Right? We try to store up as much money as we can here, and, and, and everything towards this world will get our minds on earthly wealth. But you and I need to recognize what we have for eternity. Because when we recognize what we have for eternity, all this stuff down here really doesn't matter. I mean, right, we can enjoy the things that this life has to give. We can enjoy wealth in this life, and we can enjoy uh, the blessings that we have in this life. But whether it comes or goes, our mind is always here. We know the eternal wealth that we have, and it allows us to do things like stand firm at our job place. When they start towing the line on certain things, you know that you can stand firm because guess what? If you lose your job or if you, know, if you miss that promotion or if you miss whatever that, that pay jump, whatever it is, if you miss that, that's okay because you've got an eternal wealth that cannot be touched. But if your mind and your focus and all of your attention is on earthly wealth, then it's going to dictate your mood. It's going to dictate how you praise God. But we need to recognize our eternal wealth is in Christ. Jot this reference down, 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5. This gives us a reminder of our eternal wealth, where it is, and how we should understand the protection that it has. 1 Peter 1, verse 3 through 5. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. Love that word. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance, there's our word in our passage, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So you see our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who's guarding that? God is. God is guarding all of those riches. God is guarding all of that eternal wealth. So you talk about a heavenly investment, that's an investment that's worth making because God is protecting that. Nobody's infiltrating that. God is protecting that for you, for you. And so if we look at the things that happen on this earth, guess what? They come and go. Money comes and goes. Material things come and go. But those things that we do for the kingdom's sake, that's protected by God. Those investments are secure, right, undefiled, imperishable, unfading. You are the most wealthiest of all that walk on the planet. But oftentimes we don't think like that. But I want us to recognize that because when we recognize that, we act different. We praise God differently when we understand the wealth that we have. I mean, just think for a second. If somebody gave you a million dollars right now, Right now, how much would you praise that person? A million dollars in your bank account. And they said, hey, I just want to be generous. Man, you shout that person's praises from the rooftops. You would. I would. That's so generous. God has given us a gift far greater than that. And it's eternal. Eternal. How much do you shout his praises? How much do you think about that? Because if it's out of sight, out of mind, you have a hard time praising him. But if you're thinking about it daily, how eternally wealthy you are, you won't stop praising God. You'll be like Paul. You'll, you'll string together a whole sentence without even breathing. Praising God. Because here's the thing, we, we, we tend to focus in, in the, the, the billionaires of, of this world and all of those, they get highlighted. But guess what happens when they die? That money stays. They ain't going with them. Right? They're not eternally wealthy unless they're in Christ. They're earthly wealthy, but this life is going to end. And they're going to have nothing. And they're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ with nothing. Not looking at a bank account. It will be gone. God created everything for us here in this world. Again, we can, you can have joy in the things that we have in this world. He created those things for us, common blessings. But just think, you and I are in Christ. Think if we enjoy things in this world, how much we're going to enjoy things for eternity with God. Just think what he has in store for us there. I mean, if you think about that. I mean, that's going to be a mind-blowing thing forever, forever. But we need to recognize that and think about that more often. Money, status, and material things, they come and go. I was reading an article in Sports Illustrated about uh, retired NFL players, and it said 
80%, 80% of NFL players go broke within the first three years after they're done playing. 80%. And you might be like, well, they're just stupid with their money. Yeah, maybe, whatever. But the point is, money's gone. Fame is gone. Status is gone. All within three years for 80% of these NFL guys. Right, we, we tout them as, oh, they're, they're, they're on my fantasy team and they're on all this stuff. But a few years later, you don't even remember them. And they're working at the local grocery store, still reliving their, their old glory days. All right, 80%. The point is, money comes and goes. We need eternal things. We need to focus on eternal things. And you and I have that in Jesus. We have something that's going to satisfy us for eternity. Everybody in the world is searching for that satisfaction. They can't find it apart from Jesus because God has designed it that way. We, as Christians, get to see that and know that. And that doesn't mean we're something special because of what we did. That means that God is gracious enough to allow us to see that only by his grace. There's always going to be times of weariness that we're going to have in our life, right? Struggles, trials. Paul had that, right? He's in prison. Remember writing this letter, chained up to a Roman guard. But somehow he kept his mind focused on Christ because that's where his mind was. His body was in prison. His mind was in the heavenlies, as he says. You and I need to refresh our mind and put our minds there more often. And a great way to do that is reading what's to come. Turn with me real quick to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. You can read all of Revelation 21 and 22 as you study and as you recall these passages to remember where we're headed. But I just want to look at Revelation 21, 3 through 5, and then Revelation 22, 3 through 5. I made it easier for you. Let's do that. And as we look at that, just remembering where we're going, this is where we're going. This is going to be our, our, our dwelling place forever. Verse 3, 21, chapter 21. And I heard the loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Just think about that. <laughs> The dwelling place of God is with man. We will be with him, with God. Let's keep going. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. All of those things that cause us pain in this life, they won't even be on our radar. It's not even part of eternity. I mean, praise God for that. Verse 5, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. God said, put a stamp on it. This is going to happen. And when God says something is going to happen, it's going to happen. It's trustworthy and true. Let's jump across, across the page, chapter 22, 3 through 5. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. We'll get to worship God all day long. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light 
of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Praise God. Do you know that day is coming for you? That day is coming for me. Well, we will reign together with Jesus. No heartache, no pain, no suffering, no tears, none of that. All that plagues this life, we won't have any of that anymore. It'll be fellowship, worshiping God, and you won't get tired of it, and you'll do that for eternity. That day is coming for all of us, regardless of whatever happens in this life. So if we recognize our eternal wealth and our eyes are focused on here, we can deal with this. It's like if you've been through a home remodel, right? Many of you have been through it and you've had to live through it, right? They're doing remodel on your house and you're like, this is horrible. This is horrible. But how do you get through it? Because you keep your eyes fixated on the end product, right? If you keep your eyes fixated on the end product, the remodel, the end result, then you can endure some of those imperfections that you're going through while the construction is happening, while the remodel is happening, while they keep backing up the date further and further out and it seems like it's never going to happen. I'm not speaking from experience or anything, but... You can endure that. You can endure that because you know what's coming. You know when it finally gets finished, it's going to be just what you wanted. It's going to be worth the wait. And men, that's our eternal glory. That's our eternal wealth. That's our dwelling place. It's coming. It's going to be worth the wait. But we must recognize what we have and keep our eyes focused on that. It's great to recognize that and even recall our eternal wealth. But in addition to that, in God's wonderful grace and his generosity to us, he sealed us with the Holy Spirit that allows us to experience some of that now. And it allows us to be reminded and have assurance of what's to come, of our eternal wealth. Let's jump back into our passage. Verse 13. In him, again, in him, 11 times throughout this one sentence, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory, right? To the praise of his glory. That means let us praise him, right? Because of what I just said, let us praise him. But again, as we study God's word. There's a couple things that I want to point out, or one thing that happens twice here. You notice there's a little footnote next to guarantee, right? You see these footnotes oftentimes in scripture, because if you remember back in first century, all the way up to, you know, early 15th century, they didn't have the printing press. And so it was handwritten, right? And sometimes the scribes, they would, they would, you know, mess up or didn't cross a T or dot an I or whatever it was, then when it transcribed to the next one, then they might have a difference of a letter or a difference of a phrase, whatever it is. Nothing that's going to change what the message is saying, but there's those small little details because they're handwriting all of these. And so, of course, when the printing press came and when we're starting to get the, the, the Bible in, in our hands like this, then we have what they call textual criticism. is where they get scholars together and they look at all of the manuscripts that we have and we do our best to make sure that the manuscripts that we read today or the Bible that we read today is exactly what the author wrote back then in, uh, in the first century. Right? And so every once in a while you might have a word that's slightly different, that you have two manuscripts that say pretty much the same thing, but they have a different word. So that's where we get our footnotes. And a footnote is not to say like, ah, they messed up there. No, it's like to say, 
here's something that there's two options for this, right? And so if anything, this gives us more trust in the Bible because we're not hiding anything. But you see a footnote here with the word guarantee. And so guarantee, if you look down at the bottom of your ESV, can also be known as or a down payment, right? Or a down payment. Who is the guarantee? Who is our down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, right? There's another one. There's another one right there next to it. And if you look down there, or it could be until God redeems his possession. Until we acquire possession of it, or until God redeems his possession. See, and so there's two different ways you can read it, but it doesn't change the message of what it is. We just have footnotes there. But if we look at our passage, the second part of it, this is great, right? Because he's reminding these new Christians. He's reminding these people that have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Remember how you got to salvation. And here it is right here. Here it is. Look, we get to see it. And when you heard the word of truth, right, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, there it is. There, there's, there's salvation, right? You hear the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, then you believe in him, right? So it, it, it takes us to understand in order for us to get the good news, the gospel, we got to understand that there's some bad news for you and I. If we don't understand that there's some bad news for you and I, we think we're good and we don't need this. But when we finally get it through our thick skulls that there's some bad news in store for us, then we can realize the good news. That's what Paul is telling us here. There's good news for you. And if you jump back up to verse 7, which we read, again, this is one sentence, right? Through the blood of Jesus Christ, we have redemption and we have forgiveness of our trespasses, right? He's lavished that grace upon us. You've been forgiven, he's reminding them. And because you've been forgiven and you've been redeemed and because Jesus died on the cross and through his grace and his grace alone, you have been saved. You've been saved. And he wants them to remember that. That's great for your non-Christian here this morning to understand. There's bad news. There's bad news for all of us. Bad news for every single one of us. But that's what makes the good news so good. Because through Jesus Christ, through his shed blood, we can have eternal life if we believe in him. If he becomes the Lord of our life, we can have eternal life. When we were going back and forth from Atlanta and and, and back home, or to Atlanta and then back home, uh, in the airport, it's always comical to me because I know I can look at people and tell what status they are, um, just based on if they're a confirmed ticket passenger or if they're on standby. Because my mother worked for American Airlines, you know, my entire life, and so I've had my fair share of standbys and getting stuck in airports for hours and hours and hours because you can't get on the flight. And so when you go to the terminal, you particularly see a group of people standing by the ticket booth. And some have their headphones on, and they're just chilling, just waiting on their number to be called and so they they can get on the plane. Right? And so they don't have really a, a care in the world because they know they got, a, they got a ticket. I got it right here. All you need to do is scan it, and I get on that plane. Well, then there's other people, right? They're looking left and right. They're like, I, I don't know. Did, was that my name? No, she said David. Your name is George. That, that's not your name. Right? They're, they're waiting to get up there. They're waiting for them to say, hey, I got an open seat for you because they're a non-confirmed passenger. They don't have a ticket. The only way they get on is if there's a seat that's open, and then we get standby passengers on. And so there, there's more of a frantic look in their, their eyes because they're hoping to get on that flight, where if you look at somebody that has a confirmed ticket, they're relaxed, right? Just call my name and I'm ready to go. Whenever that time comes, I'm ready to go because I'm a confirmed passenger. 
I have a ticket right here that tells me I'm part of this flight. God gives us the Holy Spirit that lets us know we're part of his family. The Holy Spirit is our assurance that we belong to God, that we're on that flight. We're confirmed. He gives us that through his grace. He allows us to have God and dwell within us to know where we're headed. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to think, am I good enough? Have I done enough? Or that sin, was it so bad that I've I, I fallen from grace? You don't have to wonder that because the Holy Spirit gives us that assurance that we are part of God's family. And if we grasp that, we have an understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit. We have an understanding of the purpose of the Holy Spirit. We have an understanding of, of, of how the Holy Spirit works through us. Then it will help us with our assurance. We won't be left wondering, but we'll continue to be useful and effective for God's kingdom because we know that it's him working through us, part of his purpose and his plan. But you and I need to grasp the assurance that the Holy Spirit gives. Because when we do, it's a beautiful thing, knowing you're part of God's family. You're a confirmed passenger in heaven. It's just a matter of time when your name gets called, but you know where you're going. And that's our second point. Third, where are we on? Second point? How many points I got today? I don't know. Two. Second point this morning, grasp the assurance of the Holy Spirit. You and I need to grasp the assurance the Holy Spirit gives. There you go. Grasp the assurance the Holy Spirit gives. Far too often for many Christians, we don't like to talk about the Holy Spirit because it's kind of, it's kind of weird, right? It's like, all right, I can talk about God the Father because most people agree that there is a God, right? There, there's God the Father. He created all things. He has a plan. And, and God, we use that word out there, we, we can all have commonality with God. So it's okay. We can talk about God in our, our testimony when we're evangelizing, when we're talking about the, the Bible or, or church, whatever. We can say God. We can even say Jesus because most people celebrate Christmas or they celebrate Easter. And so there's some familiarity with Jesus. We have no problem saying Jesus. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, we hesitate a little bit. Because it's like, all right, they're going to start thinking I'm some weird dude if I'm like, God lives in me. Right? God, God works through me, through the Holy Spirit. Once I placed my faith and trust in Christ, then I was indwelt with the Holy Spirit. What? Right? It starts to get a little weird. But it's not weird. It's not weird because God's word doesn't call it weird. God's word said that's the Trinity. And Paul, in this one sentence, is, is giving us the, the whole Trinity right here, right? He's talking about God's purpose and plan. He's talking about Jesus shedding his blood. And he's talking about being sealed with the Holy Spirit. Sealed with the Holy Spirit. You and I need to understand the works of the Holy Spirit because when we do, when we have a good grasp of that, then it'll benefit our assurance. We start to know, yeah, I'm part of God's plan. I'm part, I'm on, I'm part of God's family because I couldn't do this on my own, right? Down payment. Right, that guarantee, God's placed a down payment on you, right, on your life to be with him. And when he comes back, when Christ comes back, then you're going to be with him, right? But he's already, he's already claimed you if you're in Christ. He's placed a down payment on you. And that blessing, that huge blessing dwells within us as believers. If you're a believer, you have the best assurance in the Holy Spirit. We just need to understand who he is and how he operates. Because the more you understand the work of the Spirit in your life, the more assurance you'll have. The more assurance you'll have in your faith because you're like, yeah, yeah, this is God working in me. Right? So letter A that we need to understand, we need to know that the Holy Spirit is permanent. We need to know he's permanent, sealed. Sealed. Sealed Holy Spirit. Right? The seal can't be broken. It cannot 
be broken. He's going to persevere us all the way to the end. It can't be broken. It's not something that goes in and out or, or is temporary. But I want you to think for a second, as Paul is writing this letter to Jewish Christians, most of them, the experience that they've seen with the Spirit or heard about the Spirit, it's been temporary. So think about how, 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 how big of a moment this is to realize that the Holy Spirit is now sealed in us. Right? Think about Old Testament for a second. Think about Saul, 1 Samuel 11. Remember Saul when he was going out to fight the Ammonites? They said the Spirit rushed upon Saul. And then he went out and defeated the Ammonites, and then he lost his mind later on, and so the Spirit's gone, right? But at that point in time, God had a purpose and a plan that he needed to execute, and the Spirit rushed upon Saul, and he defeated the Ammonites. But it was temporary, right? Just think about another one, Balaam. Balaam, right? He's using a pagan prophet, a pagan prophet that God used for his glory, that he put the Spirit on. He said that the Spirit came upon him. The Spirit came upon Balaam. And God used him for a specific time and, and, and purpose. It was temporary. So now these Jewish Christians having familiarity with the Spirit being temporary, now Paul is saying, look, it's, you're sealed with it. You're always going to have the Spirit if you are in Christ. That's something totally different. That's mind-blowing to them. You and I read that and say, yeah, 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 the Spirit, I get it. But for them, they've never heard that before. And so for them, it's like, whoa, whoa. All that we know the Spirit can do, it, it, it dwells in us forever on this earth? Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes you and I need to go back to that to realize you got the Spirit in you sealed permanently. What about those Christians that fall from grace that are no longer in Christ? That's not possible. I'm sorry if you believe. It's just, the Scripture doesn't allow that to be possible. Right? If we're sealed with the Holy Spirit and we understand God's seal is very powerful, that it can't be removed. And you look at a passage like 1 John 2, 19 that says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, then they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be become plain that they all are not of us, right? So you and I, from our, our earthly lens, we might feel like somebody's in Christ. We might feel like they're doing all the right things. They might say all the right things, but then all of a sudden they fall from grace or they're no longer in Christ, they were never there because if they were there, they're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And I'm sorry, you're not breaking God's seal. We're not breaking God's seal. So the sealing is permanent. Right? You might be going through a, a hardship right now in your life. Right? You might be going through a trial right now. This should comfort you because the Holy Spirit is with you. He is sealed. He is permanent. And he is going to help see you through that. may not be in the way you want to do it, but God is going to get the glory. That's what he's aiming for. And so that trial that you're going through in your life, you should feel comfort and encouragement knowing the Holy Spirit's right there with you. He's never going to leave you or forsake you. He's sealed within you, no matter where your life is right now. You're struggling with the sin in your life, right? Pornography, anger, right? Depression. You might be struggling with one of those right now, whatever that sin is. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit, right? He's always going to lead you towards glorifying Christ. That's what the Spirit does. It's going to lead you towards glorifying Christ. Repent. Follow that lead of the Spirit and continue to glorify God. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. He has not left you because he is permanent. Letter B, we're all getting this from our passage, right? We're, he, 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 we're sealed, 
right? Sealed with the Holy Spirit, with the promised Holy Spirit. I missed that word, the promised Holy Spirit. And that's letter B for us. We need to know about the Spirit. We need to grasp and understand that he was always part of the plan. He was promised. He was promised, right? The whole time he was part of this plan. This is not something new that God just said, oh, I need a plan B. He was always promised from the beginning. Paul's showing here, if you think about those, those Christians in Ephesus and how I told you there was a plurality of, of religions in Ephesus, most of their religions was based on astrology or, 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 or the weather or how that God felt that day or how you felt that day. All of that is, is changing. It's always changing. Paul is saying, look, God's plan has always been the same. His plan has been permanent. His plan has been promised. It was always part of the plan. You don't have to trust in those those, those pagan gods and deities that they have there, that they change with the wind. They change based on the stars. They change. He's saying, no, our God that we trust in, it's always promised. His plan was always promised, and the Holy Spirit was always promised. Let me prove that to you. Jot down these two passages. We don't have the t- time to turn there. Acts 2, 16 through 18, and then John 16, 4 through 7. Acts 2, 16 through 18, and John 16, 4 through 7. Acts 2, of course, is is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And this is what he says. He's referencing Joel, which again, Joel written back in 835 B.C., so almost a a thousand years before he's referencing what Joel said. And this is what he said. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, Old Testament. He says, and in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And among and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So way back in the Old Testament, capital S, the spirit, he's saying, is coming. And then Peter takes that same writing that they all know and say, here's that spirit They're not speaking gibberish. They're not drunk. They're talking through the spirit that God promised way back in 835 B.C. during that time when it was written. Jesus even talks about the spirit, right? John 16, before he's about to go to the cross, he says, But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, right? He knew it was coming. It was part of the plan. He didn't give them that at the beginning. They couldn't handle it at the beginning. Because I was with you. But now that I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, there it is, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He's going to send the helper. So Peter talks about it from Old Testament. Jesus said, this was always part of the plan. I got to go, but I'm going to send you the helper. Right? And so if you think about that timeline, almost a thousand years to when Peter is saying that in the book of Acts, almost a thousand years prior, he's talking about the same spirit, and now the spirit is here. And then you look at us, 2,500 years plus later, the spirit is still at work here. He was always part of the plan. You and I need to recognize that. He was always part of God's plan, just like adoption for you was always part of God's plan. Praise God for that. And we can have assurance knowing that God's not changing with this world. He's had a plan from the beginning. It doesn't matter who's at the, the top of the world, who's the world power, because they changed many times through, an all, through all this time period. It doesn't matter about any of that. God has a plan, and his plan will not be thwarted. And we should take comfort in that. And we need to praise him 
because we've been adopted by him and we've been given major assurance through the Spirit. We just need to grasp the work of the Spirit. He's been sealed. He's always part of the plan. Assurance is what he gives us, and we can see it through the fruit in our life, and that's letter C for us. We need to know that the Spirit's fruit is evidence for our future inheritance. His fruit is evidence for our future inheritance. It says, until we acquire possession of it, right? So there's a little sample size things that we get here. I talked about that last week. Wait, we get a little bit of, of that, that, that what we're going to spend in eternity. We get that here now. The Spirit allows that to work through us. And we get that feeling of, man, I love this, right? I, I wish I could just keep doing this. I, we, I moved into my new home yesterday, and I had a group of brothers, some of you in here with me now, that were helping me move. And as much as I hate moving, I'm like, man, this is a great time because I'm doing it with my brothers. And it was, it was, it was glorious. It was wonderful. But it's because of that fellowship. It's because of that commonality we have in Christ. Right? And we get to do that for eternity. Paul tells, tells us in Romans that the Spirit will manifest himself in us, right? Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit, our flesh, and lets us know that we're children of God, right? That there's fruit that happens in our life that we can tell that uh, this is God working through me. Because this is not something I would do. I know me. I know my flesh. I know what I want to do. But God, God's given me this desire to do something else to glorify him. That's the spirit working. And we need to allow that to have assurance in our life. What does that fruit look like? I took you there in your homework, Galatians 5, 22, 23. Right, but the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Have at it. Have at it. There's no law. But as you look at those fruit of the Spirit, how is that showing up in your life? How is that showing up in your life? Because that's what the Spirit is producing. But are you being obedient to follow that? Are you loving to your spouse? Do you seek peace with people? Right? Do you have self-control, men? to say no to certain things. When your flesh desires something, you can say no, because I know the Spirit is going to help me with that, because that's part, that's part of the fruit that he produces. Do you have those things in your life? Because the Spirit will work to do those things. It's a matter of are you willing to be obedient to what the Spirit is trying to do in your life? That's the fruit of the Spirit. Is your life marked by that? doesn't matter what your situation is. Right, the Bible, Bible is calling us to live like that because when we do, it glorifies God. It gives him all the praise. And when people see us, they start to see Jesus working through us if we're marked by the fruit of the Spirit. Speaking of verbal praise, if you're, remember, if you're familiar with classical hymns, you know one of the most famous hymns, one of the most sung hymns over the last 300 years is the doxology. Right, the doxology, doxa, means glory, 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 and then Logos means to speak or to write, right? And so we, we speak or we write glory and praise to God, doxology. That's what that means, right? But that, that doxology, if you can put it up there for me, Chris, uh, is the most sung hymn over the last 300 years, written by Thomas Ken in the late 1600s. But many of you have, 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 have sang this in you know, previous churches or, or you've uh, recited this at the end of meetings or whatever it is. But here it is, right? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. 
Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. 25 words, right? It ends with amen. You can add that in there. But 25 words. But here's the thing. You can just read that as if I just, like I just read it. And you can just kind of blow past everything that it says. Or you can read it and take every word and realize the depths of every word. And the praise is at a whole different level. Right? We do that with worship. You can say words or you can really think about the words that you're singing and give praise. Give the greatest amount of praise to God. I mean, think about it this way. Let's, let's read it again. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. All blessings flow. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. Everything that you see good in this life comes from above. All blessings flow. Praise God for that. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly hosts. All right, Philippians 2.10, in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. In heaven, on earth, and below earth, every knee will bow to Jesus. All right, you get an opportunity to do that now, but at some point in time, every knee will bow. Praise him, all creatures below, all creatures above, in heavenly hosts, all of them. Every knee is going to bow to King Jesus. Praise the Father. Praise the one that had the plan. Praise the one that adopted you. Praise the one that predestined you. Praise the one that chose you before the foundation of the earth to glorify him. And he had a purpose and a plan to get glory through you. Praise the Father. Praise the Son, the one that lived the perfect life, that died on the cross, that shed his blood so that you can have forgiveness, you can have redemption through Jesus Christ. Praise him. Praise the Holy Ghost. Praise the Spirit, the Spirit that lives in, that indwells within all of us, that sanctifies us, that allows us to be more and more like Christ every day that we live and allows us to have assurance that I'm part of God's family because guess what? On my own, I wouldn't do this. But I know the Spirit is working through me and He's producing fruit through me to allow me to know that I'm part of God's family and to allow God to get the glory. Praise the Spirit. 25 words. Much depth in those. You and I need to make sure that we daily recall the eternal wealth that we have in Christ. Eternal wealth, right? And so whether you're singing, whether you're, you're, you're praising, whether, whether you're just talking, whether you're meditating on God's word, you and I need to always give God the greatest praise. Give him the greatest praise, right? And let, us, let, us, let our actions show that. And let's make a vow to do that starting to today, right, going forward. Because guess what? When we do that, we glorify him. And he is worthy of our greatest praise. Let's pray. God, you are worthy. Lord, help us to be better at praising you. Help us to set a tone for our church, to help us to understand the responsibility that we have as men of the church, to lead the church well. Help us to be marked with the fruit of the Spirit that this men's ministry would be looked upon to say those are all godly men that love Jesus and that understand the eternal wealth that we have in Jesus. Lord, we want to do that well. I pray that you would help us. We know that there are temptations. We know that there are, 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 are obstacles and hurdles. We know that that is all part of this life, which you have planned, but you have given us a spirit to help us to overcome that. 
And Lord, I pray as we go into small groups now that we would continue to bond together as brothers. We would lock arms and we would glorify you well here at Compass Bible Church. We give you all the thanks and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.